Welcome to Write Stuff Radio, where we showcase Christian authors worldwide. Each week, join me for a new author and a great new book to add to your library. Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we are going to be talking about where death and folklore collide. We're going to be discussing this with my guest co-host and contributor today, Kent Holloway. He is an author as well as a forensic investigator. I can't wait to dig into this topic with him. He has some wonderful insights to share with us. Before I do that, I want to thank you all for your support of my newest release, A Chance for Genevieve, which is part of the Mail Order Bride series, Last Chance Brides, which, as most of you know, was a spinoff of the Blizzard Bride series. I'm really excited about the response I've received from you. So if you haven't had a chance to get your copy, it's available exclusively on Amazon.com. So go ahead and pick it up today. We want to thank our Patreon team for their support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years. And as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. And so, without further ado, I'm going to introduce my co-host today, Kent Holloway. Kent, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. And thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here with me today. I never take it lightly to have our guest with me. And today is no different, particularly since you are a forensic investigator. And I am so intrigued to see what a day in your life is like. What do you think about how death is depicted and how folklore is intermingled with all of that? So I can't wait to dig into this topic with you. But before I do that, I want to give our audience a chance to know about you. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I have been working as a forensic investigator, a forensic death investigator, for about 27 years. It got started uh, when I was in college trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life and that kind of thing. And all my, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated with Sherlock Holmes. And this was way before shows like CSI ever came about or NCIS or any of that stuff. So Sherlock Holmes was my guiding light. I wanted to solve murders. I wanted to solve mysteries. And, but I didn't want to be a a police officer and drive around in a car and break up uh, drunk and disorderlies and domestic disturbances. I wanted to jump right into homicides and that kind of thing. So I went to work for the medical examiner's office in Jacksonville, Florida, started there. And now um, I've been working in the medical examiner's office in the nation's oldest city, St. Augustine now since 2006. So I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. And everything I do, I try to do for his glory. And he, is, uh, he hasn't led me down the wrong path yet. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. One of the, of the things that I like that you said is that you mentioned how Sherlock Holmes had an impact on you. And most of us know that Sherlock Holmes wasn't the first of his character type to be part of 
fiction, we know from Edgar Allan Poe, from the murders of Ruth Moore, he was actually the prototype of Sherlock Holmes. But one of the allures of Sherlock Holmes was that he used deductive reasoning to figure things out. And I was surprised to learn that Sir Conan Doyle used those same techniques that he wrote about to find two men who were accused of crime to find them innocent. And so I like that aspect of your story. Do you find yourself sometimes being in a situation where the results of your investigation can make or break a case? Yeah, actually. As a matter of fact, I'm working on one right now. And I, without going into too much detail, I can tell you uh, just this week we had a apparent suicide by a gunshot wound to the head. And when we get him back to the autopsy suite to perform the autopsy, we noticed that he was uh, also shot in the leg at a very unusual angle. And it was problematic because the gunshot wound to the head, it was uh, obviously a contact gunshot wound, a hard contact gunshot wound. And 99% of the time, a hard contact gunshot wound is going to be a suicide. The reason for that is if somebody puts a gun to your head, you're not going to sit still for them to have a full contact with the barrel against your head. You're going to be at least jerking around or, or something. So to get a, a contact gunshot wound typically isn't going to be something you're going to see in a, in a murder. But we have the second shot in the leg and trying to figure out where that came from, how that came from. The way the, the leg wound, the, the trajectory of that leg wound, there's no way he could have done it to himself. So part of my investigation in this, in this particular situation is trying to figure out all the different possibilities. Could he have shot himself in the leg by some means that isn't so obvious? and or with somebody else in the room with him and and we knew he was fighting with his wife that night could you know his wife uh, have shot him that kind of thing and so part of my job is to test all these different theories that we have and uh, i did research on the gun that was used i found there's a lot of uh, faults with the gun. So at this particular point, we're believing that when he shot himself, he dropped the gun. And guns aren't supposed to, they're, they're designed not to go off when they fall and hit the ground. But this particular gun has a lot of, like I said, faults. And we believe at this point that the gun went off and shot him in the leg as he's dropping to the ground. That's kind of what I do. You're like Columbo. Just one more question. I am so excited to be talking to you right now as you say that because I can just see how you're trying to simply close the loop on this inquiry. How is it that you are around death so much? How are you able to desensitize yourself from it? Is it just the fact that it's your job, or are you still affected by some of the cases that you see? Well, and I say this to a lot of people who are interested in getting into this line of work. I, I, I believe that God gifts people to do this kind of thing. You're either made for it or you're not. There's no getting used to it. There's no adapting to it. it it's one of those things where, you know, I joke sometimes that death investigators, uh, forensic pathologists, those kind of people are uh, maybe a little uh, borderline sociopathic, but I mean, and that's just a joke. But I think that we, ha we do have an ability to just detach emotionally from these particular cases. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I, I was taught, like maybe the first week on the job, when I first started out, I had an investigator who was training me and he told me, he said, you know, when you go to these scenes and you see that body on the ground, you just have to picture them as just a piece of furniture with a hole in it. And that sounds cruel, 
and that sounds um, bad, but it, in a way, it, to me, a body is a puzzle that needs to be solved. And later on, I can process emotionally if the need arises. If I'm dealing with family members of a loved one, I, I've got to be good at, at um, I guess, turning it back on again and, and being uh, genuinely sympathetic with them. But when it all comes down to it, my number one concern is the dead body, even over family members. And uh, it's, I'm the last voice that that family member has for justice, that dead person has for justice. And so in order to do my job, I have to be rational. I have to be um, deductive, inductive, and emotions really don't have a place in it at all because emotions affect reason and affects thought. And so um, it's just something that naturally comes to people like us who, who work in this field. Absolutely fascinating to hear some of your thoughts about this. You remind me of an episode of American Greed that I watched where this foreigner spent about two days working on a case trying to figure out all the wounds that were applied to this body. And he said, I believe the dead deserve that sort of detail. And because of that detail, they were able to figure out that it was the husband who killed the wife and all the other things involved with the case. So I kind of see you as a crusader, but in a way you're a crusader, but it doesn't matter what the life of the dead person is. Your job is to figure out the cause of death. If it's not natural causes, what else is it? And I think that makes you kind of like the Batman of forensic investigation, I would say. Now, it brings me to another point I want to bring to you because as a writer, and you do write for the general market, your brand is where death and folklore collide. And I want to talk about that because you have been surrounded by death in a practical application. But along with death, there are a lot of beliefs and worldviews about it. So how does the folklore part of your interest in death affect as a author and as a reader? Well, I can, in order to get into that, let me tell you how it all came about. Uh, before I started writing mysteries and, and that kind of thing, I used to write thrillers and especially paranormal thrillers, um, things with ghosts and monsters and, and that kind of thing. And uh, a mentor of mine, um, the creator of Remo Williams, Warren Murphy, the Destroyer series books, he reached out to me one time and he said, Kent, he goes, you're a forensic death investigator. Why aren't you writing mysteries? Why aren't you writing stuff about what you do? And I told him, I said, I'm not, I'm not interested in writing or reading about the stuff that I do because I do it. I don't, you know, I, I read and I write to escape. And um, the last thing I want to do is really, you know, read straight up mysteries, just boring old mysteries. Uh, despite my love for Sherlock Holmes, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it, most of it to me is is um, just old hat. And so I really got to thinking about what he said, and I thought there was wisdom in what he said in, in regards to with my expertise, writing mysteries was kind of a no-brainer. I really got to thinking about the fact of my life and how I've been, what I've been fascinated with in death investigations, and that became uh, obvious to me at, at some point was the different cultures and the way in which they uh, see death and how different uh, religions and different cultures respond to death. 
and the mythologies all surrounding death. And I have a passion for family members who maybe have a different belief system other than Christianity. And I feel that they are, there's a disservice within law enforcement and within death investigations in general. Because once, for instance, somebody goes into a house and all of a sudden they see images of Loa from Voodoo or uh, some of the, the deities from Santeria, instantly those law enforcement officers freeze up. They get scared. They think that they're going to get a curse put on them and this, that, and the other. And, uh, well, these family members who of this loved one is grieving. And so they're not being properly ministered to. They're not being properly uh, dealt with because of this, this fear. So it really led me to studying more and more and more about these different religions and these different mythologies. And so it all sort of blended together as, as time went on. And eventually it just sort of evolved into this idea of death and folklore collapse. Of interest to me is the idea of being cognizant of various death folklore, mythology, and practices from different points of view because it does aid in understanding why a body may have been placed in a certain way, why a body or why the ritual rather is important to this. So I think you made a very good point about understanding these things. You don't necessarily have to subscribe to the belief system, but if you understand it, it probably will help you in your work as well. That's what I'm getting from you. Would that be? Absolutely. And a perfect example of this, this wasn't my case. It was another investigator's case that I work with. She goes to a scene of a suicide by hanging. This lady has hung herself from a tree. Her daughter comes out of the house completely naked. Her adult daughter comes out of the house completely naked and begins to dance around this tree with the mom still hanging in it and chanting and come to find out the mom and the daughter and the whole family are Wiccan. And uh, this was a death ritual that was taking place. Now, you know, come to find out later on too, the daughter and her brothers uh, helped mom uh, hang herself in this tree. Uh, She had a terminal illness and this was a mercy death kind of situation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but it was through understanding of their belief system that we really were able to piece together that the the family assisted in this suicide. So understanding these mourning rituals and these um, customs regarding death really helps to figure some things out sometimes. What are some of the more prominent depictions of death that you've experienced or seen in your work and in your writing research that you can share with us? Well, I'm not quite sure I understand that question. What are some of the depictions of death that you have seen that are really prominent in cultures, in folklore, in mythology that you can share with us? Maybe one or two, like one of them will be like the Grim Reaper. What are some other depictions of death that you've seen? You know, voodoo has quite a few, probably my favorite, if you will, the Loa um, that are designed or geared towards the death and protection of the graves. Papa Legba is a perfect example of that. He is, or, or Papa uh, Samiti, he's the guy that you always see that is wearing the top hat, uh, smoking the cigar, and, you know, essentially face painted with like a skull. And, you know, his job and his, his the entire family and the, of that particular Loa uh, tribe is designed to be guardians of the grave, guardians of the dead. Uh, they're what's known as uh, psychopomps. Uh, psychopomp is a being that essentially ushers a dead person to their final resting place. 
And so that is one of the most prominent visages of death in other cultures. Um, you've got in a, Egyptian folklore and stuff like that, Anubis, the, uh, the god with the, um, the dog head. Same thing. He's a psychopomp. All of these figures are in our mythologies are psychopomps. They are designed to lead people to the dead. They're not evil. They're not uh, designed to be scary. They're not designed to, they're not boogeymen is what I'm trying to say. They're actually always depicted with a, a sense of guardianship and uh, a guide to the afterlife. The only different example might be the Celtic uh, Banshee, but she's more of a harbinger of death as opposed to he's, she's before death, uh, not after. But there's there's so many to choose from that it's hard for me to. Uh, another, I guess, less favorable figure of death would be the Latin American Santa Muerta, but it's not really her fault. Santa Muerta, of course, the saint of death, has been sort of hijacked by drug cartels down in Mexico and in, in that region. They believe that she protects them and that bullets won't even hurt them uh, because of her protection. So the common person in Mexico who worships Santa Muerta, they're not bad guys, they're not drug cartels. They are just looking to Santa Muerta for just aid and help, uh, especially for their dead loved ones. So it looks like we have death being depicted by different cultures in several ways. As a harbinger, as you said, a guardian, a guide. And then we have one of the more prominent ones in the Western world, which is the Grim Reaper. Why do you think the Grim Reaper is so prominent for our society here? Obviously, the Grim Reaper and his, his visage was popularized by medieval, maybe uh, Renaissance painters, uh, that kind of thing. So the, the actual, the way he looks and everything else has been from Goethe to, to uh, several other famous uh, masters have, have depicted the Grim Reaper with the, the skull and the, the robe and the scythe and, and all of that. And even to lesser extent, Santa Muerta, if you looked at Santa Muerta next to our vision of the Grim Reaper, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference except for the fact that Santa Muerta will, will be holding a, a globe in her hand and maybe a crown on her head. But I think that the bubonic plague has a lot to do with our the popularity of the Grim Reaper. You know, we think of bubonic plague as, as ancient history, but it helped shape the foundation of the Western world. And so it was around that time period that the concept of the Grim Reaper began to really take shape and kind of take a foothold in the subconscious or uh, in the mythologies of the Western world. And so um, I don't think that it ever really let go, even after the plague was over. And so I think that's why he is, when we think of death, the Grim Reaper is for Westerners, Americans uh, and Western Europeans, uh, I believe that that is the vision of what we have when we think of death personified. One of the fascinating things about the visage of the Grim Reaper is that the artistic diversity of how he is depicted is actually quite fascinating. He's been depicted gently. He's been depicted in aura. I saw one young teenage artist depict him as a woman, and it was highly sexualized, but it was very interesting. And the Grim Reaper and other depictions of death, like you mentioned, other cultures, they really centralize our fascination with death and what's on the other side of death. So my next question has to go back to now Hollywood, because you are a forensic investigator. What does Hollywood get right about what you do for a living? Not much, honestly. I mean, you know, they get the science right. Uh, you know, you watch shows like CSI um, and NCIS and, and that kind of thing. Most of the time they get the science right. 
to some degree. What they do with it, though, is odd because, but they have to do it. If Grisham from CSI, by the way, I haven't watched CSI since it first came on, so I don't know any of the characters except Grisham now. He will sit there and and think about a scene, and, he, and all of a sudden he gets this brilliant idea about some kind of technique that they can use to maybe pull fingerprints from a body or something like that. Well, what they're not sharing is, well, that would be standard operating procedure on any case. But in order to make him look like he's super smart or the modern day Sherlock Holmes, they're making it seem like he is just coming up with this brilliant idea. The number one issue that I have with these shows that Hollywood produces is the, and we talked about this earlier, is the amount of emotion that they show. I can't stand the shows because I watch it and it, it's, you know, the melodrama of it is is ridiculous to me. They become so obsessed with a particular case and, you know, I've got to solve this case. And, and it's one of those things where in reality, there's too many cases coming in and coming in all the time. You don't have time to sit there and obsess over one particular case. You definitely don't have the, the spiritual or the emotional fortitude to put yourself in a case like that because it'll burn you out. It will it'll devastate you and uh, it may even break you emotionally. So to put yourself emotionally into those situations, uh, not so good. I'll tell you, you know, lots of just came to mind too. I see a lot of depictions of burned bodies in TV shows and stuff like that. And uh, it, it, it's kind of odd considering the time period that it was actually done in. But I think the X-Files probably has the best depiction of a burned human body I've ever seen. Even a decomposed human body, I think they probably had one of the best depictions. You don't really see these bodies looking the way they're supposed to. But shows set in the 1990s uh, or filmed in the 1990s seems to be the best one that I've seen to date. Well, they had to use practical effects, too. They didn't have a lot of CG. And I liked X-Files. I wasn't a major fan of it like my sister was, but I liked it. And I remember the episode you're talking about. I don't remember all the storyline behind it, but I remember going, ooh, <laughs> when I saw that particular scene. So, yeah. But I, I'm loving this conversation, Kent, because you're just, as a forensic investigator, desk consumes you in a sense because you deal with it all the time but you're able not to be first of all afraid of it it's something that is a part of life you're able to use your work as a way to tell stories and as your brand says where death and folklore collide so you have these sets of books where that happens that but you don't take a grim look at death. You actually take a, a lighthearted approach to it so tell us about some of these books uh, first of all I want people we're all going to be scared of death. I mean, it's, it is built into our DNA to avoid death at all costs. It's just, it's something that we just, it's instinctive to run away from death. What I don't want people to do is be fearful unnecessarily of it and, and what comes after. And so part of my thing is to sort of, as much as I'm into mythology of death, I'm into also demystifying death. And, and like you uh, said, uh, you know, too many times in, in our history, too many times in our Hollywood and you know, TV and movies and books and that kind of thing, death is used as a as a boogeyman. He's used to to bring fear and to really um, send this you know spine tingling. So when I wrote these, you know, a lot of my books, I wanted to go the, the different approach. So uh, you know, I have one series called the Ezekiel Crane series. And those are a little darker. Those are set in Appalachia, Kentucky, modern day, and which uh, the hero is 
he's a, a kind of a Sherlock Holmes and a hillbilly Sherlock Holmes, if you will. But he uses a lot of uh, Appalachian folklore and, and that kind of thing to in mythology to to solve his mysteries. And, but there's a lot of witchcraft, uh, not witchcraft, witches, monsters, ghosts, that kind of thing in that series. So that's a little darker. But when I decided to go into full-blown mystery stuff, and I came up with the concept of Grim Day's Mysteries, I, I uh, decided to make the Grim Reaper himself to be the sleuth. I thought, how interesting would it be if murders were taking place and the Grim Reaper didn't know how they were being done or who did them? Because it's the Grim Reaper's job to actually take the dead, right? So what would happen if somehow he lost control of the ability to take some people's lives and somebody else started taking them instead? You know, he came, he comes to Earth, takes the form of a, of a human um, using ectoplasm. Then for the first time in millennia, he begins experiencing what it means to be alive. He discovers the joy of warhead sour candies or uh, free drinks and stuff like that. So he really begins to live it up. Uh, while he's solving these mysteries. Uh, made sure he had a good sense of humor. As a matter of fact, if I had to, to pick a person that I based him on, Nathan Fillion would be probably the, the inspiration for his persona in these books. So he's got that childlike wonder that Nathan Fillion is, is really known for. And so in these mysteries, he goes ahead and he and he, uh, he interacts with other figureheads of death uh, from time to time. They're kind of like, you ever watch classic Doctor Who? They're kind of like the Time Lords worded to the Doctor and uh, kind of always in his in his way, always uh, poking and prodding and, you know, you're not doing this right and that kind of thing. So they're kind of his foil as he's trying to solve these these mysteries. So uh, very lighthearted. I, I think I told you when we weren't recording that, you know, I could never compare myself to Neil Gaiman, but he's my aspiration anyway. So a lot of my books are, uh, a lot of these particular books are very Neil Gaiman-esque uh, to some degree. And then I've got, I was talking about Papa or Baron Samiti, Papa Legba. I have another book that is sort of a historical fantasy with a bit of mystery in it called uh, Voodoo Tombstone. And uh, it's about essentially Loa spirit of the dead who sort of is a renegade. And uh, he takes over the body of a dead man and the dead man's still there. And uh, so they're having this conflict within as the Baron Tombstone is doing his evil work. The dead guy is, is battle against him and the underworld. You know, so I try to take all these different mythologies and regarding death and shine a light on them to make them a little lighter, make them a little more fun, give somebody a chuckle here and there, but also a couple of frights along the way. But it's essentially to demystify death and, and not make them such a, a scary monster. Well, there is some terror to it because death does separate loved ones. And particularly as Christians who experience the death of a loved one, we definitely don't like it. But as Christians, we don't see death as the end. We see it as the doorway, if you will, to what comes next, to the life next. And I can think about how with all of your experience dealing with death in many different ways from a practical aspect, learning about death from different cultures, uh, writing about death in different folklores and things, you know, what encouragement can you give to our listeners out there that for, as a Christian, death does now hold fear for you? This is very near and dear to my heart. And it's kind of, I guess, if you want to say what my ministry in writing is, and my ministry, is, and, and this is exactly it. And that is, 
unfortunately, death is universal to the human race because of the fall, because of the sin in our lives, the sin that we're born into. Death comes for us all. And one way or another, we're going to go through that threshold. One, one way or another, we're going to go through that door that you mentioned. And But it doesn't have to be a frightful ordeal. It doesn't have to be scary. And you're right. When I, I, I was kind of downplaying the idea that death is scary, and, it, and for, for a lot of people, it is. Uh, even for me, I mean, death, I, I always joke around the fact that I'm pretty good friends with death. But, you know, I don't want him knocking at my door anytime soon. Not really interested in having him for tea, in other words. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's not coming to my house for, for dinner anytime soon. But at the same time, when he does come, I face death quite a bit in my life. And uh, even in my job, I have I have seen him face to face on a couple of occasions of where I've been in a dangerous situation. And I, I'm thankful that God has, has sort of uh, graced me with peace during those times that, you know, although I don't want it, I don't, I don't, you know, it, it's not something that I'm terribly fearful of. And it's because of, I know, I mean, oh, you're looking for encouragement. Perfect example of encouragement here. I've got a book. It's my only nonfiction book that I've written so far. It's called I Died Swallowing a Goldfish and Other Life Lessons from the Morgue. And in the book, I highlight some of the weirdest cases in my profession, and I give them some biblical lessons to them and that kind of thing. But one of the very first things I say in the in the very first chapter is one of the best ways I know to absolutely know that death is not the end is the first time I ever saw a dead body at a, at a medical examiner's office. I remember looking at that body of uh, this woman who she was an alcoholic and she had basically just died of alcoholism. And I remember looking at her on that table and never seeing her in my entire life. But if even if nobody told me that she was dead, just looking at her, I knew she was dead. I knew there was something different about her. I knew there was something missing from her. And it's more and more obvious every time I see a dead body, there's always something not there. Something is missing. And, and that something is the human spirit. It's the, not only the soul, but it is the spirit. It is gone. And there is something you can put a dead body next to a living body, lay them side by side, have that living body hold their breath, whatever. And I can look at and I can tell which body is dead and which body is alive simply from the aspect that I can tell which body has a spirit. It is so obvious when you see it. It is so, it, it almost hits you in the face that the spirit is gone. And so the, the encouragement that I get from that is if looking at a dead body can tell you that a human person has a spirit, then that spirit has to live on past the body when the body dies. And if that's the case, then a person's soul also lives on after death as well. And so the only question then comes down to where does that spirit and soul go to? Where does that spirit, where is it going to spend the rest of eternity? And that's the key question. And beyond salvation in Jesus Christ, you know, I can't really offer any encouragement. But it is through Jesus Christ that I know we are saved and our souls will go on in amazing existence uh, for eternity. But it's all because I've seen enough bodies to know when a human spirit leaves its mortal cult that I can assure you that, it, that all of what we say about Christ is true. 
And as we get to the end of our show today, Kent, I got to say, it's been just wonderful talking to you and hearing your thoughts about death, listening to you talk about a day in your life, listening to your views about understanding various cultural perceptions, beliefs about death and how that can help people interact with other people with different cultures and so many other things that you just barely scratch the surface on. And then for you to take a lighthearted view of death in your writing with your Grim Reaper series, where the Grim Reaper is trying to figure out how this person died because you would think he would know. <laughs> and if he doesn't know, then they were really good at this crime. So it's very interesting to see how you do that. And I love how you brought it all together at the end about the hope we have in Christ. And I love your example that you showed us about how a body is dead because the spirit is no longer there. This has been a fascinating conversation. I hope our listeners have also benefited from this as well. I know I did. If people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you online? Well, I have a website. It is uh, KentHollowayBooks.com. And, but I, I'm mostly on Facebook. They can feel free to friend me. I pretty much, you know, accept any friend request that at least doesn't look bogus. You know, as, as long as we've got some similar friends and I see you've been there for a while, I usually accept friend request, uh, you can uh, email me at jkentholloway at gmail.com. And so those are the best places. It's been wonderful having you talk with us today. I usually end the show with you giving us an encouraging word, but you already did that. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us on the show today. And we will be having you back and having you back real soon. Excellent. I look forward to it. And we were talking today to Kent Holloway. He is an author and a forensic investigator. We were discussing the aspects of death and folklore. And if you were invigorated by this conversation, make sure you go ahead and visit Kent's website today. Browse through his books because he is going to be back on the right stuff and we're going to delve inside one of his books. More than likely the Grim Reaper series, but we'll let you know at a future date. What I loved about this conversation is that even though it went kind of dark, it ended on a light note. We do not have to be afraid of death, particularly those of us who are in Christ Jesus, because death is not the end. It is actually the beginning to something new, something even better than we have when we die in Christ, because he saved us from our sins. And we don't have to be eternally separated from him ever again. So I'm hoping that you got the same encouragement that I did. And make sure that whatever you do, make sure you pick up the pen and write stuff. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J, and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.